Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught. I'm the host and the content director here at Word on Fire Catholic Ministries. Joining us as he does almost every single episode is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron, good to talk with hey, you. Hey, Brandon. Good to talk to you. Good to see you. Now you're back stateside. You just spent uh, yeah. several days over in Rome and in England. Why were you there? How did it go? Yeah, it was fantastic. I was in Rome for the canonization mass for John Henry Newman, who's been a hero of mine for a long time. I've been looking forward to the day when Newman would be canonized. So I was able to go to that. And as a bishop, I got up there in the front near the altar. And it was just a thrill. Beautiful day in Rome. Liturgy was wonderful. Well, today we are going to be unpacking a recent interview between two very popular people in the culture. One of them is Joe Rogan, and the other one is Richard Dawkins. Joe Rogan is a, a stand-up comedian. He was a mixed martial artist, color commentator. He's probably best known as the super popular host of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Uh, I just checked yesterday. It's the number four ranked podcast mm. in the world. Sometimes it floats even into the top three. Joe's a really fascinating guy. He was raised Catholic and went even to Catholic school for a little bit of time, but had some bad experiences, got pretty jaded, and now he's a somewhat uh, um, uh, angry ex-Catholic, if you want. Uh, he regularly interviews top influencers, top authors, uh, musicians, entertainers, all that. And in his most recent episode, he brought on Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is probably well-known to most listeners of this podcast. We've talked about him several times before. Um, he cut his teeth as an evolutionary biologist and was one of the most famous scientific writers of the last, say, 20, 30 years. He is an emeritus fellow of New College in Oxford, where Bishop Barron just visited. And he was the University of Oxford's professor for public understanding of science for more than a decade. But in the popular culture, he's probably best known for authoring uh, a book called The God Delusion, uh, probably the best-selling atheist book of our day. He's one of the leaders of the so-called New Atheism Movement, and he just released a book titled Outgrowing God, A Beginner's Guide, and he describes it as sort of the God delusion for young people. So it's aimed at teenagers, college-age students, and whatnot. So Dawkins released this new book. Rogan invited him onto his podcast to talk about the book. They had about an hour-long discussion. It was just posted a couple days ago at the time that we're recording this. It already has over 1.1 million views and it's only going up. So this was a, a really popular, intriguing discussion between two men about God, atheism, religion. So what Bishop Barron and I decided to do is we're going we're gonna to talk through several different segments from the interview over two episodes. So this episode will cover the first half. Next episode next week, we'll cover the second half. And uh, I think what we'll do is just play little 30-second, 60-second segments and then go from there. So, Bishop, sound good? Good. Let's do it. All right. Let's dive in. Here's the first clip. Well, it almost seems like if you were studying human beings, if you were something that was completely alien to our civilization, our culture, and you were looking at this this strange tendency to believe in something that there's no proof of and devote a massive amount of energy into defending that, put it into your songs and put it into, you know, your Pledge of Allegiance and all these, which of course was not until the 1950s, but all the different things that people have done in so many different cultures with in, in regards to religion, it almost seems like a natural aspect of being a human being. You're right that they put an enormous amount of energy and effort and, and expense and time 
uh, and and cost in share. I mean, some of the extreme sects which whip themselves with mm. with, with horrible weapons actually bleed, yes. uh, scar their own backs. Uh, it's a, it's very very surprising to a biologist who you, you think we would think that they would be more interested in surviving and reproducing. But no, there's something about religion that makes them go to extremes of costliness, and I don't get it. I must say. So, initial take on on that sort of opening statement. This is just from the first few minutes of the interview. Yeah, here's the first take, Brandon. Uh, go back to the psychologist Carl Jung, uh, who had a you know kind of interesting relationship with religion. But he said there's been a consensus gentium that God exists. What he meant was a consensus of the peoples over the ages. We are the very very peculiar group. We moderns and postmoderns that now in increasing numbers don't believe in God. The absolute consensus of the peoples of the world is that the sacred or the divine or the transcendent or God exists. Now, that in itself doesn't prove that that God is real, but I do think it should give people pause. The view that, oh, it's just a silly, irrational uh, delusion caused by ignorance and I mean, just on the face of it, that should strike people as a pretty inadequate explanation. And now it's related to the next point he made, which was this thing for which there is no evidence. Is it likely that now, I mean, across all of human history, as far as we know, the earliest records we have, people are religious, almost almost 99%. It's again, we are the very peculiar uh, culture. What are the odds that all of those people were simply suffering from a mental uh, illness or a delusion, that there was nothing like, and I'm going to bracket the word, you know, proof or evidence, because it's a very loaded word, the way the new atheists tend to use it, that there was nothing like a rational warrant for belief in God. I think given the consensus gentium, that just seems to be a very unlikely position uh, to hold. There are indeed plenty of rational warrants for belief in God. Now, I'd say most people probably hold them more implicitly. Some philosophers make them very explicit. But you and I know, Brandon, you know, there's probably 20 or more of famous arguments for God's existence. Can we quarrel with all of them, most of them? Yeah, maybe. But show me one area of philosophy that delivers absolutely convincing arguments for the position. I mean, that's just the nature of philosophical reasoning. But can you simply say in this dismissive way, oh, there's no justification, there's no proof whatsoever. I think both the consensus gentium argues strongly against that and the presence of many of these arguments that have been entertained by some of the smartest people in, in the Western world. So just on the on the face of it, I'm very uneasy with the the first premise really of this uh, of this argument. All right, let's move on to the next clip. This is where Rogan and Dawkins are talking about religion as a response to our human finitude and our sense of our desire for meaning and that kind of stuff. Here's the second clip. I've thought about this so many times. Uh, do you think that it is in some way a counter to the sort of existential angst that comes from being a finite life form, from being a finite, a, a thinking conscious finite life form that's aware of its own demise, it's aware it's coming. So it has to formulate some purpose and some meaning. 
and and uh, a hope of an afterlife as yes. well. Yes, yes, and that is the purpose and meaning, right? Yeah, yes, I suppose that's right. Yes, I think that's that's right. Um, I can understand why people might want to believe a priest who comes along and tells them you don't have to worry about death because you're going to survive it. I'm less understanding of people who make up stories uh, to comfort either themselves or other people. I mean, a made-up story should not be comforting. I don't understand how a made-up story can be comforting. Of course, if you make it up and persuade somebody else, then they could find it comforting. Mm. On the other hand, is an afterlife really all that comforting? When you think about half of them believe they're going to go to hell. So is anything but comforting? You know, Bishop, when I, when I hear these attempts to explain the psychological genesis of religion, right. it, it always bugs me because it ignores the fundamental question of whether it's true, not where yeah, did it right. come from, not why do we believe it, but is The genetic fallacy, so-called. Exactly. Yeah, that if we can uncover the psychological roots of a belief, we've determined something about its truth or falsity. That's the genetic fallacy. And of course, we haven't. Even if it's true that it came simply from you know, our existential angst, it, it wouldn't prove anything about whether it's true or false. But let me make another point here, Brandon. You know, go back to the theology of someone like Paul Tillich in the 20th century. Tillich said, finitude in awareness is anxiety. It's one of his formulas. Well, that's what Rogan's beginning with, which is, I think, right. It's true. We're finite and we know it. And what that gives rise to is anxiety because we realize how, how vulnerable, how limited, how contingent we are. We're not in control of our lives. Now, you can say, oh, therefore, I invent this wild fantasy world of religion. That's Feuerbach, that's Marx, that's Freud, that's Sartre and company. That's a standard atheist reading. Or you can do what Paul Tillich did, standing very much in the tradition of St. Augustine, which is to say, to know a limit as a limit is already to be beyond the limit. See what I'm saying? To recognize oneself as finite and to feel the power of that is already, in a sense, to be in the presence of what transcends your finitude. Your anxiety brings you, yes, to the edge of your own experience, what you can know and control. But from that edge, I look. Now, of course, it's going to be an inchoate vision. It has to be. I will look, though, into what transcends my finitude. So you could take the atheist route, and, and there's different ways we could engage that. But I think a very lively option is to begin the, the way Tillich does and the way Joe Rogan does. That, yes, our anxiety does bring us to the limits of what we can know and control. And that compels us to look into what transcends that limit. So I have no trouble beginning with anxiety, if you want. It's a more Protestant way to do it. Catholics tend to begin in a way more optimistically with what kind of links me to God positively. But fine, I'll begin with, uh, with uh, anxiety. But I don't think it necessarily conduces along the atheist path. All right, let's move on to the next clip. And I, I should probably preface Oh, you know this. what, no, Brandon, can I just Go say ahead. one quick thing sure. about heaven? Uh, or is it is it the next one where he talks about how boring heaven would be? Uh, yeah, I think, um, I can't remember if we're going to get there or not, but go ahead. Here's what I, because he's talking about, you know, uh, the afterlife would not be comforting because first of all, the fear of hell. But then I think he, at some point in the interview, he said, well, how boring it would be, you know, to to live in heaven for you know trillions upon trillions of years. Well, of course, that's precisely the wrong way to think about it. Heaven is not endless time, right? 
heaven or the eternal is to be outside of time, to be beyond time. I agree with him to say, I'm going to be within time for, you know, 80 trillion years. That would be a crushing sort of vampiric type existence. But that's not what eternity means. Eternity means to be outside of time. And, And the best window to it in our experience would be those best moments in life when we are so engaged in whatever it is, the search for the true or the beautiful or the good or the pleasurable, that we're so into it, we're so ecstatic, we're so out of ourselves that we lose all sense of time, right? That I, boy, I was, I was just so, so into that. Two hours went by, I didn't even know it. That gives you a glimpse of what real eternity is like. It's not the crushing, vampiric, endless time that Dawkins is talking about. Okay, in this next segment, Rogan and Dawkins have an exchange about psychedelics and their relation to religious experiences. And this is what I uh, thought it would be worth prefacing, that Rogan is a big advocate of using psychedelic Mm -hmm. drugs to facilitate some sort of transcendent experience. Um, So listen to this clip. Well, there's so many stories in so many ancient religions that seem to originate with the consumption of some some sort of a psychedelic. Yes. And, you know, there's many, including John Marco Allegro's uh, The Sacred Mushroom Jesus, and the Cross. Jesus was a mushroom. Yeah. Yes. Yes. So, I, mean, I mean, you could see the connection if you were a primitive person with no access to science and you found some mushroom growing under a tree and consumed it and had this unbelievable experience, you would assume that you've transcended this life and gone into this uh, other realm where, where God exists. I've, I've actually heard Bishop Joe Rogan say bef- interpret before the story of Moses and the burning bush that this some scholars say that this particular bush or this particular tree, when burned, gave off psychedelic you know effects. And so Moses was actually hallucinating all these experiences of God because he got too close to this bush that was on fire. What do you make of these psychedelic explanations of religion? Well, I I wouldn't make too much of them. I I would say this. um, Can we find in the history of religion something like this? Sure. Just as there are various techniques, if you look at a lot of different religions, including things like fasting, things like celibacy, things like uh, collective singing, things like liturgical forms, that are meant to produce something like an ecstatic experience, right? So are there some religions that have used the psychedelic and all that to trigger a sense of of the transcendent? Yeah, sure. But I would never want to reduce what religion is talking about to what's produced by these various methods. Call them perhaps ways of opening a window, ways of opening a door onto a a deeper experience of life. I'd be much happier with someone practicing the great contemplative tradition within Catholicism, which is very rich and is is uh, accompanied by a very deep psychological perception. Or, you know, if you want to go to the Eastern religions, the way uh, Buddhist monks will use their chant and their and their prayer techniques to trigger a sense of the of the mysterious or the opening of the door. But see, what's much more interesting, at least from a biblical perspective, is that God speaks to us. So the various techniques that we might use to kind of bring us to the point, to to open the window, those are much less interesting to me than God speaking to us. God, as it were, coming through or around those doors or around those windows and addressing us. That's much more interesting to me. 
So I, I just wouldn't put a lot of weight on the psychedelic thing. Sure, it's there in the history of religion, not so much in, in ours. You don't really find it. Read the Desert Fathers or the Great Contemplatives or Benedict or John of the Cross. You don't find anything like that. You do find very sophisticated methods of contemplation. And where disciplines like fasting and, and celibacy and, and group singing and all that play a role. But I wouldn't put that much weight on those things. I remember during your big Reddit AMA, there were several questions about psychedelics and their relations to the saints and the mystics and how should we read the mystics? Were they using psychedelics? And I think you echoed a lot of this stuff that you just said here. But what it it sort of affirmed for me was that there's a lot of people, especially young people, that are just so burnt out on flattened out secularism that they're searching yeah. for something that lifts them sure. to a different realm. Is that your sure. sense? Yes. And go from like Aldous Huxley, you know, that the young Thomas Merton uh, read and then come right up into the 60s and when the psychedelics were being used, you know, in a more popular way for the first time. Uh, yeah, there's a spiritual longing behind it. But I would never reduce the experience of God to whatever is happening in my psyche at the, um, uh, you know, caused by the psychedelic uh, drugs. That's something. And it might be the opening of a window you know, but I would never reduce authentic religion to whatever is happening there. Okay, so next up, Joe Rogan and Richard Dawkins turned their attention to the Gospels and the Bible and how they were recorded and transmitted to us today. So here's that clip. Where, um, you know, the, the Gospels weren't written down until decades after Jesus' death, if he ever lived, which he probably did. And so... Having seen how easily the cargo cults arose, people who, who um, worship John from worship Prince Philip, um, believed that cargo planes were sent by their ancestors and would build dummy airfields with dummy control towers and radar dishes and dummy planes on the airfield and things. This is all within living memory. Mm. And something like that, it's just so transparent that something like that went on in the early church. So what do you make of that historical analysis? Not at all. Uh, it, it, I mean, frankly, it just betrays someone who, who doesn't read deeply in the serious religious tradition um, to access what serious religious people philosophically, mystically, and so on have, have thought about religion. So, I mean, that's a very superficial analysis, seems to me. Um, but let me make a point about the Gospels and, and that famous sort of tossed off line of, oh, they're written many decades later. I first came across that line probably when I was about you know, 20 and reading uh, religion and theology for the first time. It impressed me a lot more when I was 20, when like, oh, yeah, 40 years seems like a long time, you know. Heck, now, as I move through life, that doesn't seem long to me at all. Uh, 40 years ago, let's say between the, the death and resurrection of Jesus and the writing of the first gospel, let's say for sake of argument, you're talking about 40 years. Let's just say that. Um, I remember things 40 years ago with absolute vividness. If you asked me to contribute to a book, let's say about what was life like at Catholic University in Washington 40 years ago, and someone sat down to interview me, I mean, I, I, I have absolutely vivid memories of things that happened at Catholic U 40 years ago. I could tell you teachers I had, what the campus was like, where I lived, uh, great personalities I ran across. Or like when I was there at Catholic U 40 years ago, I went to the uh, first Reagan inauguration and uh, 
with a friend of mine, we were 20 years old and we thought, well, let's see how close we can get. And so we took the Metro and it's before security was really, you know, intense. And we actually got quite close to the dais, to the Capitol. And Reagan was the first one to be inaugurated on the Western side of the Capitol, looking toward the mall. I remember Jimmy Carter coming out after a long night of dealing with the hostage crisis. I remember Nancy Reagan wearing a brilliant red dress. I remember Reagan's address. I remember it was a beautiful spring-like day, even though it was January 20th. It was in the 60s. Now, what's my point? My point is, here I am reminiscing about things that happened 40 years ago, and I'm able to do it with, with ease and with precision. Somehow this little tossed off line of, oh, you know, Jesus uh, uh, lived and died and, and then 40 years went by. And then some people just made up these wild stories. That assumes that everyone that knew Jesus went on a spaceship to Mars and just disappeared. No, there all these people that Jesus spoke to, who listened to him, who were touched by him, maybe cured by him. The apostles themselves who saw him after he rose from the dead, they didn't disappear Rather, they were very thick on the ground, doing what? Preaching, teaching, uh, privately, publicly, telling the stories. And then all these people that also knew and saw and heard Jesus, taking it in, repeating, telling their own versions of stories. It's all of that dense, loamy, textured preparation that leads to the Gospels. So now let's say Mark, first Gospel. Traditionally, Mark is seen as a young um, apprentice, associate of St. Peter. Uh, we know that Mark, from the quality of his Greek, which is lively but sort of primitive, probably had Greek as a second or even third language. He was probably a, a Jewish uh, companion of Peter who learned Greek, but listened to Peter and to his preaching. Peter, who knew Jesus intimately, directly, Mark taking in his preaching. And having listened to now all these years of an oral tradition, finally, yes, putting pen to papyrus and writing it down. Now, same with Luke. Same with the Gospel of John. Whoever put pen to papyrus was someone in the community around John, the beloved disciple, who knew Jesus, vividly remembered him. To say, oh, it's 40 years later. Who? So what? I, I remember lots of things from 40 years ago. Um if someone told me, oh, you know, uh, Robert Sokolowski never taught at Catholic U in the 1980s. Yes, he did. Yes, he did. I remember. I was in his class, you know. So this view that somehow the Gospels are just kind of tissues of lies and fabrications, it's just, it's just ridiculous. Uh, and the older I get, the, the more ridiculous that suggestion seems to me. I think it's worth observing that the scholarly consensus places the Gospel of Mark, probably the earliest gospel, around 66 to 70 AD, although some scholars have dated it even earlier into the 50s. However, all of the writings of St. Paul predate sure. the writings of the Gospels, and Paul pretty strongly affirms many of the main facts about Jesus, you know, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, most importantly. And Paul's writings can be traced to not only within a decade, but within single digit years of Jesus's resurrection, the traditions he used date back that closely. Yeah. So now we're not talking 40 years, we're talking about a small handful of years. Sure. And, and uh, I've always felt this objection is much more 
uh, from faculty lounges in the late 20th century and 21st century than it is, uh, you know, from a realistic assessment of the situation. All right, let's move on to the next clip. So this is Joe Rogan and Richard Dawkins talking about how religion provides a scaffolding and a sense of moral structure for people, but why that should not necessarily make people believe in religion. Here's the clip. Find great comfort in these belief systems. It gives them sort of, uh, I've often said that it gives them some sort of like a scaffolding for their, uh, just their structure of the world, their ethics, their morals. They, they can use religion as some sort of a, a mechanism to help them get by, something that they can climb on to uh, ease some of the confusion of the unknown. I'm sure that's true, but I don't understand why anybody therefore thinks that therefore the religion is true. Why mm. would you think that because it provides you with a scaffold you can climb on, that makes it true? What do you think of that, Bishop? Well, we're right back in, in a way at the genetic fallacy. So in a way, sure, I, I don't. it doesn't in itself prove that it's true. Uh, so in a way, that that's going to go nowhere on either side. But I, I would add this, though, Brandon, the whole scaffolding thing. Um do we need God to be morally upright? Well, I would say no, in the measure that you've got atheists and so on who can be very morally upright people. I'm not denying that for a minute. They can be good moral people. But it seems to me what you can't do is justify ultimately the objectivity of your moral values apart from God. It becomes a very dicey business when you take God out of the equation and now you try. Uh, give me a theory because I've heard all of them. Give me a theory that that justifies a moral system of objective uh, moral values. Very quickly, outside of, of this ultimate metaphysical ground, these claims become relativized and they become culturally uh, determined. And then we move into very dangerous territory, it seems to me, when we say, well, then why not shift you know, with the times? And, and so you got your point of view, I got mine. Uh, sure, I think this is the right thing to do, but you know, who am I to judge you? Take God out of the equation and try it. It's not that easy. Now, to justify truly objective moral norms. Now, if you think, oh, that, what's the problem with that? Well, then, you know, Adolf Hitler had his own, you know, culturally grounded reasons for doing what he did. Joseph Stalin, you know, following Lenin said, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. And so why not kill 50 million people? Uh, I'm using extreme cases to make the point. That once you take out an objective metaphysical grounding for moral value, you've got a hard time avoiding a sheer relativism and subjectivism. So I pursue it that way. I wouldn't say, oh, ipso facto, an atheist has to be a bad person or an atheist can't be morally upright. But I would say an atheist has a very hard time justifying or explaining the objectivity of his moral claims. It reminds me of a line of argument that the young G.K. Chesterton used when he was just an atheist. He explains this in his book, Orthodoxy. He said, I was a young atheist and I was reading all these atheists making arguments against God. But then I realized I'm coming to believe in God for all those same reasons. And this was yeah. one of them. They said, you know, it, it, it provides this scaffolding or this structure for people who need it. And he said, well, I do need it. And I count I that as it, evidence yeah. for God. Like, yeah. as you just explained, it provides the scaffolding for objective moral truths. Right. And what you did there, Brandon, is very interesting because you you carefully move from a purely psychological, and that's what you hear in, in Rogan and, and Dawkins there was, you know, kind of a, a patronizing, like, well, poor things. They need this little psychological support. 
So there's that way. And that's more genetic fallacy kind of stuff. Like, well, all right, who cares if it comes from some psychological need? But what you did is you moved it into the metaphysical realm that I need a scaffolding, if you want, to explain the objectivity of moral values, just as I would say, to explain the objectivity of the intelligibility of the universe. Now, that's getting us back to the scientific realm. Um, can you be an atheist scientist? Yeah, of course you can. Look, Dawkins. But can you ultimately ground your sense of the intelligibility of the world apart from God? I think there you've got a much harder uh, road to hold. Okay, we'll move on to the next clip. And this one contains a classic Richard Dawkins argument. He features it in his God Delusion book. It's an argument that Joe Rogan describes as, quote, a home run argument, presumably huh. against God. So here it is. One of the things that I really enjoyed about your book was when you explained to people that everyone who, who practices a religion is an atheist. You're just an atheist in regards to Zeus or yeah, Apollo. Or, or the or, 999 other gods. Yes. yes right, and yes. that that's a home run yeah. with this argument. Yes. Some of us just go one god further. Yes. Yeah. But th that really is a home run because this is this concept of, you know, I, I me and my friends jokingly w would always say praise Odin when anything would happen yeah, that was yeah, pretty yeah, good or yeah, cool. Yes. We say praise Odin and I started doing it online and people really got into saying praise Odin about certain things. I rather like that, yeah. Some people got mad at me. They actually got mad. That I was, that you are mocking Christianity by saying praise. And of course Odin. you are. <laughs> Why not? Well, I wasn't even really. Yeah. I was just having fun. Yes. I was having fun because Odin seemed like a cool god. You know, it's, it's a an old school god. You know, I mean, it's the god of the Vikings. All right. Well, Bishop, you know I love Vikings, but uh, yeah. bracketing the Odin question here. <laughs> what do you make of this? It's a very famous argument oh, that yeah. uh, that Dawkins helped popularize, often described as the one God further objection. He's trying to make yeah. it sound like, hey, look, we're all atheists. It's right. just that I'm an atheist in regard to one more God than you. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I mean, a home run. To me, it's just a total swing and a miss, that argument. Uh, I'll, I'll get it two ways, one negative, one positive. The negative one is this, uh, whether you talk about Odin or Thor or Osiris or Zeus or Poseidon, you know, any of these uh, mythological figures would be beings in the world, right? So however you're imagining them, they're kind of super versions of finite things in the world. They're superhuman type figures. What serious people mean by God has nothing to do with any figure like that. God is the unconditioned source of existence itself. God is the sheer act of to be itself. God is not one being among many. God is the sheer act of, of being as such, which means that, that holding any of these finite sort of figures, these mythological characters to be God is just sort of silly once you understand what serious people mean by the word God. So not believing in them has nothing to do with not believing in the true God. The true God has, has so little to do with figures such as that. Um, so it, it's apples and oranges. It's not like, oh, now just one more example of, of debunking Osiris or Thor or Zeus. Th those figures have nothing to do with what serious people mean by the word God. But here's the more positive way to do it, Brandon. It's simply not the case that, let's say, a Christian would hold, well, we're right and they're all wrong. <laughs> so everybody else that's ever believed in any sort of God is wrong. No, no, on the contrary. Vatican II teaches, for example, that there are elements of truth in every great religion. There, there are rays of light. There are, are, are indications of truth in every major religion. We're not simply saying 
we got it. Everybody else has been crazy. No, no. They, they even the mythological religions represent some kind of aspiration toward the transcendent, some sense of the transcendent. There's something right in all the religions of the world. Uh, so it's not this stark either or that they want to propose. And, and the argument kind of hinges upon the either or quality of it. I wouldn't do an either or in this positive way. I'd say it's a kind of both and that we'd rec- recognize the, the fullness of divine revelation contained in, in Christianity, but elements of the truth of it contained in, in all these great religions. Um, so you could do it negatively that these figures have nothing to do with the true God. Positively, there's something right in in all the great religions. So it's not this stark either or that they want to propose.